0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Among his first 100 days actions, President Joe Biden issued an executive order establishing a $15 minimum wage for federal contractor employees. A detailed analysis, though, shows the order won't affect federal spending much, but it will cause a lot of work for contracting officers. We get the details from the managing editor of Sensio Consulting, Kurt Cody. Mr. Cody, good to have you in.
0: Great to see you. Thank you
1: and I should say you're joining me in studio, and this is the first for us in about uh, 15, 18 months since the pandemic, so the world is returning to normal. But you looked at the population of contracts that could be affected by this executive order, and I thought the most amazing detail was the effect it would have on contracting officers. Tell us what you found out.
0: Yeah, when the executive order came out on, um, I think it was April 27th, You know, we saw a lot of great analysis on the macroeconomic impacts of the order, analysis on what it may mean for the standard of living for individuals who may be impacted who are currently making the federally mandated minimum wage. But we didn't really see any coverage of of how the government would put it into action. And when we started thinking about what our clients were going to be facing, you know, we realized there's going to be a lot of work that contracting officers and acquisition organizations are going to have to do in the next year.
1: Basically to verify that the contractors are doing what they're supposed to.
0: Yeah, exactly. So imagine that you're a government contractor and you put in your price proposal for a typical base plus four-year option contract. When you put your price proposal together, you're going in with a set of assumptions on what your cost is. Now, imagine you're a contractor, you're in the second year of a contract and employ a a lot of folks that make the minimum wage, and all of a sudden your costs go up 50%, going from about $11 to $15. Well, it's reasonable for you to go to the government and say, hey, my cost basis has risen. Can I get an economic adjustment for the price that I charge to the government.
1: And so the bottom line is a lot of hours
0: of work. A lot of hours. So if you're the contracting officer, you get a request for an adjustment from one of your contractors, from one of your vendors. First, you need to take that data. You need to analyze what they're saying. You need to do your due diligence to make sure that the cost increase is substantiated with data. Then you need to make sure that there's budget available from your program office customers. You know, as we keep thinking about all the work that's going to happen, you know, we estimate based on our benchmarks, that's about 15 hours of work per contract. And, you know, the question is that how many contracts are going to be impacted? And we came up with about 30,000 contracts are going to need to be looked at, analyzed, and edited.
1: All right. And so what does that add up to in hours so before people pull out their calculators? Yeah. So
0: 15 hours per contract, 30,000 contracts, that's 450,000 hours of, of additional contract workload. So that translates to about 240 individuals.
1: Wow, so that's a real piece of work, then.
0: It is. It is, and you know, it's it's spread across the agencies. You know, Department of Defense, obviously, as the uh, the biggest spender in the government, is going to bear the brunt of this. But agencies such as Veteran Affairs, USDA, the Department of State, they all have sizable contract portfolios, which we think are going
1: to be impacted. And you mentioned a total government-wide of some thirty thousand contracts that could be affected. What is the general nature of those types of contracts?
0: Yeah, so our first analysis was: are professional services contracts going to be impacted? And you know, as we suspected, the answer is no. You know, very few professional services contracts have employees making the the federal minimum wage. Then what we did was we looked at labor classification data, and what we found out was: you know, there are a pretty discrete set of contracts that are going to be impacted. Janitorial services is the biggest, landscaping services, food services, and laundry services round up the uh, top five.
1: Yeah, so that's where people doing the contracting work and on which the bids were made then are low-paid people.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: We're speaking with Kurt Cody. He's Managing Director of Censio Consulting. And again, DOD has the most contracts that would be affected by this rule?
0: They do. DOD, we're estimating, has about 11,000 contracts that are going to be impacted. VA is about 8,000. And then USDA and the Department of State are both about 2,000 each.
1: Got it. So agencies where there's people in uniform may have a lot to pay because the laundry goes out. Would TSA be part of that, I wonder? I bet it would.
0: I bet it would. TSA, um, part of Department of Homeland Security.
1: And let's talk about the impact on federal spending this will have.
0: Yeah. So that was one of our other questions. You know, After we looked at what's the workload impact, what's the implication on budget? You know, as we started, you know, thought thirty thousand contracts, that has to have a, a pretty big impact, right? But these contracts, you know, they tend to be relatively low dollar figures, and what we've calculated is only about a a one billion to two billion dollar impact on total government spending. Which, you know, $1 billion to two billion dollars, it's not like that's nothing. But when you think about the government's total contract spending, six hundred billion dollars in two thousand nineteen, we're talking about a fraction of a percent.
1: Yeah, so then what is the bottom line advice that you've got for agencies now facing a lot of work possibly, a lot of examination, and probably it's fair to say every agency should look at the contracts, even if they don't have the quantities that DOD does. What are you telling people? Yeah, we
0: think every agency needs to look at your contract portfolio and identify how much spend you have in these key impacted areas. Number two, then go into those contract files and look at the pricing structure. That'll help you understand just how many contracts you're talking about. What's the workload going to be starting in January 2022? Um, And then we're also recommending that agencies put policies and processes in place, right? We need to answer questions like, who's going to be doing this work? Will it be the responsibility of individual contracting officers, or might it be more efficient for an agency to set up a working group, a tiger team that will just handle this and mass. What data does the agency need vendors to submit to substantiate their request for price information? And how's that data going to be validated?
1: Right. And when does all this take place? There's a deadline. It's not
0: tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. So the order goes into effect January of 2022. Essentially, any new contracts that are awarded after that date or when a contract hits its option period, that's the point that the, the minimum wage goes into effect, as well as guidance that agencies should start incorporating this now, even though it's not policy yet. will be.
1: And there's also an open question here that's not strictly part of the research, but something we can imagine. I'm looking at, say, nursing services and trying to overlay that with, say, Veterans Affairs Department. Now, the Veterans Affairs Department has its own nurses as employees, but as they pay a larger number of community care advisors, I guess you wonder, will the administration extend this to people that are funded by the government but not on a contract basis? but on some other programmatic basis like the community care program.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a natural way to read the intent of the order, right? It was very clear in the order that this doesn't just apply to prime contractors, to subcontractors as well. So it seems like the intent is to widen this net to encompass all folks that do business with the federal government.
1: Yeah, so that could be by the contracting medium or by any one of other mediums, grants, for example. You've got it. And just briefly, what was your methodology for discovering and distilling out all of these different types of (laughs) contracts and the quantities associated with them? Yeah,
0: so there was a lot of data analysis that we did. It started with looking at government spending from FPDS. We then looked at labor classification data from the Department of Labor, as well as prevailing wage data, also from the Department of Labor. And then we looked at cost structure data from benchmarks, you know, how are contracts structured, where are the costs coming from build
1: up to, to agency prices. Sure. And a final question, there is a little bit of regional flavor to this because the contractors in the south pay less than those say mowing lawns in Albany, New York.
0: Yeah. I- exactly. Just like any facet of the government, the prevailing wages are much higher on the coasts than they are in the Midwest and deep south. So, as we're advising our agencies, we're recommending, you know, don't just look at the categories of contracts, but look at the place of performance. If you have a, a janitorial service being executed in New York City, you are certainly paying those employees more than $15 an hour. If you're in the Midwest, in the Deep South, yeah, you may have a sizable population that would need to be plussed up.
1: All right. Good report to see all of this quantified. Kurt Cody is a managing director of Sensio Consulting. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
2: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
3: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.
0: Grab a 30 day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.